0: book of Philippians. (coughs) Philippians chapter 1. Our text this morning in verse, is verses 6 through 11. We turn this up just a little bit. I'll read aloud. You can follow along with me as we do. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. And blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, help me to speak this morning. I'm a broken vessel, but your word is eternal indestructible father help this church to hear from you this morning help them to be changed by you grow their affections for you build their confidence in you resolve their resolve, help them to resolve to grow in their obedience to you god give us every good gift from your hand that we have available to us this morning In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, Two things about the sermon before we jump in. Number one, this is part one of a two-part sermon on this text. Part two will be next week. The second thing is, I don't know if you guys have noticed all of the cooing and all of the baby noises this morning. If you're struggling with that, you can go find a church with a bunch of 65 and up-year-olds, you know, uh, the, and, and we love the 65 and a half year olds so much. We love them so much. And I won't hear about this later at all. But in all seriousness, this is evidence that God is giving life to our church and that we're passing the gospel on to the next generation. So rejoice and do your best to, to focus, okay? The prophet Isaiah in chapter 13 cries out to Israel, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. The prophet Joel, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and destruction comes from the Almighty. The prophet Ezekiel issues a similar warning to the two tribes of southern Israel. Saying, the day is near. The day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. And the evidence from Old Testament scriptures could be so many more. The consistent witness of the Old Testament is that the day of the Lord is a day Of judgment. And this judgment, according to scripture, will be a day of terror to the unjust, but it will also be a day of relief to those who are suffering and oppressed. Now, as we move into the New Testament, God reveals well, something new about the day of the Lord. So in John 5, Jesus reveals that the Father has given him the authority to carry out this final day of judgment. He says this, And he, that is the Father, has given him, the, the Son, authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. In Luke 17, Jesus, speaking of the final day, says that the final day will be his day. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. The Apostle Paul, writing about this final day, in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ, says this, He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see is that the last day is the day when Jesus will be revealed as the all-righteous judge of the universe. Now, there's a sense in which he's already revealed himself to be that. But the world, in their unbelief, doesn't see him for who he is. But one day, when he is fully revealed, when he comes as the Son of Man, he will be seen by all to be the Lord of the day of the Lord. So, to summarize... The day of the Lord in the Old Testament is fully revealed to be the day of our Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Now, to consider this day in greater detail, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians. And guys, listen, this is a sermon where you're going to want to have your Bibles out and be ready to flip, okay? Um, Not a lot of illustrations and anecdotes this morning. We're just going to be doing a lot of text work, which is probably better for us all. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 6. Here is Paul's perhaps lengthiest treatment of the day of the Lord. And so we read, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief To you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven. With his mighty angels. In flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be a terrible day. The Lord Jesus Flaming holy fire, angels all around, swinging the sword of judgment, banging the gavel of judgment on anyone who has rejected his offer of free grace. We continue, verse 9. Those who reject this offer will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed so so what i'm trying to get for you right now what i want you to see i want you to have this fully orbed vision of the day of the lord we, we could look at more scriptures, but I think that, that pretty much gets us there. The, the day of the Lord, a great and awful and terrible day. The Lord coming in his holy fury to render judgment, to separate the chaff into the fires and the wheat over here, the goats over here, the sheep over here, some into eternal destruction, others into eternal felicity. This is the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now turn back with me to Philippians chapter 1. Look at verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So this verse is a classic go-to verse for what is referred to as the doctrine of eternal security or Perseverance of the saints or preserv- preservation of the saints. That's the doctrine, the biblical doctrine, that all of the true saints of God will persevere till the end. So did, did you catch that? Where, there's a point to which they must persevere. What is that point? The point is they must make it to the end, to the last day. Verse 6, the day of Jesus Christ. That is the goal for every saint of God. That's my goal. That's, you. That's the whole reason why we're here. We're all locking arms so that we can walk together towards this last and final day of judgment. The goal for the Christian is not to have an impressive start. That's not very hard. Anyone can walk an aisle, cry, confess sins, and have an okay start in their Christian faith. The goal for the Christian is not to have an impressive second act, you know, a strong middle, but then to fade away at the end. No, the goal for the Christian is to complete the race and to make it all the way to the end. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, to be found guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with that in mind, I want us to ask ourselves a question as we begin our time together in the word. Will you? You can ask this to yourself. Will I be found guiltless on the day of Christ Jesus? We're all going to die. We're all, if, if Jesus doesn't come back soon, right, we're going to die. We're going to close our eyes for the final time. And, and then we're going to open them in, in front of the white, hot furnace of God's holy glory and splendor. One moment, perhaps you'll be in your car, or walking down the street, or in line at Walmart, or in a hospital bed. And the next moment, you will be standing before the judgment seat of Christ. It's going to happen like that. So here's the question again. Are you sure? Are you sure? That's the language that Paul uses in verse 6. I am sure of this. Are you sure that you will make it to that day? Guys, listen. This is the most important thing in the world. Forget all of the junk you brought in here with you this morning. Forget about politics and family dynamics and relational strife and financial concerns. Listen, when you open your eyes before the judgment seat of Christ, your sports team, you won't give a rat's butt about that. That's two weeks in a row I've caught myself. But really, like your, your, fi- your financial stress that's kind of bearing down on you, When you die and then you're standing before the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to be thinking, why was I worried about thousands of dollars? Thousands of dollars? That's what was keeping me up at night? That's why I didn't listen to the sermon? That's why I didn't examine my heart? No. Forget about all of that and ask yourself, how can I be sure? There's today and then there's that day. How can I be sure that I'm going to make it from this day to that day? It's the most practical thing you can ever consider. That's all of the application for this morning's sermon. You're like, Sean, this morning's sermon was light on practical application. Wrong. Wrong. And th- this is what all of this morning's text is all about. As Paul sits in prison, likely awaiting his execution, he's, he's spending time in prayer for all of the churches that he's been laboring with in the gospel, and as he prays about the Philippians, he feels a kind of confidence that all of the true saints of God there in that church will make it home to be with Jesus. He says he's sure of it. Now now let's, let's ask ourselves this question, okay. How, how can Paul be so sure? I mean, is he just being presumptuous here? Is he just being bombastic? Did he sort of just get carried away as he was pinning this letter? How can he be so sure? This is important. Eternal destruction, eternal happiness. He's confident. Happiness, not destruction. It's important that you're confident in the same way. Because if your confidence is misplaced, then your eternity is uncertain. So why is Paul so sure? Well let's let's investigate Paul's confidence. There there are two aspects I think in this text. Uh, two aspects of Paul's confidence. The first is the subjective aspect. That means it's it's kind of open to interpretation, right? Uh, tacos are they taste good, right? That's subjective. I think it's objective, but no, it's subjective. And then there's a more objective aspect to his confidence, right? It's not really debatable, it's just, it's, it's true, it's self-evidently true. So let's start with the subjective aspect of Paul's confidence. In verse 7, <clears throat> after Paul says that he's confident that the Philippians will be found in Jesus, l- look there with me in verse 7, Paul says this, It is right for me to feel this way about you all. This is interesting. Here's what Paul's doing. He's saying, I feel confident in your salvation, and it's good, it's right that I feel this way. Well, okay, Paul. Uh, Based on what, I guess? I mean, why is it right that you feel this way? We know that feelings are not infallible guides, especially when it comes to salvation, So so why, why is it right? Well, Paul continues. He says, you can look there in the text, because I hold you in my heart, which means because I value you, because I love you, I treasure you, I cherish you. Well, okay, I guess. I mean, that's sweet, but it's not much of a guarantee. Your affection for the Philippians is not a very strong foundation upon which you can build your confidence for the last day, I mean, someone probably feels that kind of confidence and joy and satisfaction in the ministry of Joel Osteen. Someone probably says of Creflo Dollar, I hold you in my heart. And we should not be at all confident for the salvation of false teachers. So what else do you have for us to go on, Paul? Well, we, we keep going. He says, I hold you in my heart for, that is because, or in light of this reality... You are all partakers with me of grace. Okay. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting somewhere. Paul's subjective feelings, I hold you in my heart, are grounded in something a little more objective, namely his perception of the grace of God at work in their lives. Okay, and that's good. That's good. Now we're getting on solid ground, but it's still... Fairly open to interpretation. I mean, in what way are the Philippians partakers with Paul in his grace? Well, he goes on. He says, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now we're moving on to even more solid ground, right? Here's something we can build a foundation on. Paul's affection for the Philippians His confidence is grounded on the fact that they have proven themselves in gospel ministry at great cost to themselves, right? That's that's a real evidence of grace. Anyone can profess Jesus, we already know from from Peter, right? When things are going well, right? Jesus, I'll never deny you. If all these bums leave you, I'm going to be right by your side, right? But can you stick with Jesus in the courtyard when your life's on the line? When it's going to cost you. Paul says, as I'm looking at our ministry together, Philippian church, I see that you're counting the cost. And that's a real, real significant evidence of grace. Do you remember what, what we said was partnership in the gospel last week? In chapter 4, we said that partnership in the gospel is when we share in each other's troubles for the sake of Jesus. And that's what we see here with the Philippians. They're sharing in his troubles, not just once. Not just twice, not not just a a one-off big check donation put in the offering plate, right? But consistently from the first day until now. That's what we read in verse 5. And that causes Paul to have a sort of confidence in the work that God is doing in their lives. Just so you know, uh, I think like this. I reason in this way when I think about my confidence uh, in you. When I think about members of the church and are they going to make it to the last day, when I say things like, I'm sure that he's going to make it to the last day or that she's going to make it to the last day, I kind of reason like this. One example that came to mind in my prep this week was Spencer Miller, who I probably have more history with than anyone in this room, right? I say, I am sure that Spencer is going to make it to the last day. Why? Well, because we've been partners together in the gospel for over a decade through the ups and downs and highs and lows and trials and tribulations of gospel ministry, through my sin, through his sin. I've seen him lay it all on the line for Jesus, and that gives me a kind of confidence in his salvation. Nevertheless, that is still fairly objective, excuse me, fairly subjective, right? It's it's owing to my interpretation of. Of these events. We need that. But it cannot be the only. It cannot be the main confidence we have. It's open to interpretation. It can be the result of confirmation bias. It's based on personal experience. It's just not enough. You know that it's not enough. You know how easy it is to misjudge spiritual fruit, to see grace where perhaps there isn't none because you want to see it. So in order to have real, true, sturdy gospel confidence for the last day, not only for ourselves, but for for others in the church, we need something greater, something stronger than our own fallible interpretation of grace. What we need is confidence in God. And that's what Paul says he has in the Philippians. Look at verse 6 again. Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. What we see in verse 6 is that Paul's ultimate confidence for the Philippians is rooted in God himself. Paul is sure that the Philippians will be found blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness on the day of Christ Jesus, not ultimately because of their work, but because of God's work, which is rooted in his very nature. Now there are, in verse 6, two things for us to consider. First, we must consider that Paul says that God begins the work of salvation. Or I guess I should put the emphasis on God God is the one who begins the work of salvation. The second thing is that God is the one who finishes the work of salvation. So let's, let's start where, where Paul starts at the start, at the beginning. Paul says, he who began the good work. What does it mean that God began the good work in the Philippians? There are really two aspects of salvation whenever we think about salvation. There's, there's, there's a dual perspective. There's the human, right? That's what we see from our perspective. And then there's the divine. Okay, from the human perspective, salvation looks like this. The gospel is preached. Sinners repent. They believe. They're saved. They're added to the church. That's what we see. Why? Because we don't have x-ray machines We can't see inside people's hearts. We don't know what God is doing in their souls. Then there's God's perspective. The perspective of the heart. It's the behind the scenes perspective. And scripture reveals this to us in several places. In several places, scripture sort of comes along and it goes, Hey, you want to look behind the curtain and see what God's doing in salvation? And then God peels back the curtain and shows you how he's sovereignly at work. To begin the work of salvation in us. So in order for us to see that in scripture, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, please. (coughs) We're going to be in verses 22 and 24. Excuse me, 22 through 24. Paul says for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. (laughs) In contrast to that, we preach Christ crucified. Now this preaching of Christ crucified, it is a stumbling block to the Jews. And it is folly to the Gentiles, which means they don't get saved. They don't get saved. They hear the gospel message. They think it's wrong, bad, stupid, dumb for different reasons, but they don't get saved. But in contrast to that group, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. There are two different kinds of calling in scripture, and we see them both in this text. There's a general calling, which basically just refers to the preaching of the gospel. That's what you see at the beginning of this morning's text. Or excuse me, at the beginning of this text in 1 Corinthians. That's, that's the preaching of the cross. We preach Christ and Christ crucified. Right In light of the finished work of Jesus, we know that God is calling all men everywhere to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus for salvation. Paul says that this... This general gospel call, it's universal. It goes out to everyone, not just the Jews. It goes out to the Jews and the Gentiles alike. It goes out to all of the nations, the whole world. Now, here's what you need to know about this general calling. It can be resisted. You know that. You share the gospel with people, right? Hey, can I talk to you about the gospel? You give them, oof, your best gospel presentation, and they go, eh, right? I'm, I'm not buying it. Okay, so this can be resisted. And more than that, it is always resisted in the flesh. Why? Because Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. That is, they're, they're stupid, they're foolish. He goes on, he says, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That is, the Spirit of God's not living in him, so he can't make sense of this message from God. So, with this general gospel call, the Jews may resist it for one reason, the Gentiles may resist it for another reason, but they both resist it because they are incapable of accepting it. A dead heart cannot receive the living word. A mind that has not been quickened by the spirit cannot understand a message that is spiritually discerned. And yet, Paul says that some do receive the message. Some Jews, some Gentiles... Elsewhere in scripture, we know that it's people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Some people, when they do hear the gospel, they believe it. It's not the aroma of death. It's the aroma of life. For some people, when they hear the gospel, it is not foolishness. It is the very wisdom of God. They hear it and they go, I can't believe this. For some people, it is not a stumbling block. It is actually heavenly power coming home to them in their hearts. Now, here is the question. And guys, if you don't get anything else this morning, get this. Why do some reject it while others believe it? It's the same general call. We don't change the gospel. We're preaching Christ and Christ crucified to anyone who will listen. Some reject it and some receive it. Why do some receive it? Not why do you think some receive it. Why does Paul say that some receive it? Well, the answer is right there in verse 24. Just look at, look at verse 24 again. In contrast to those who don't believe, verse 24, those who are called, both the Jews and the Greeks, to them Christ is the power of God. In the wisdom of God. Friends, that's the difference. The difference is that some are called. The general call goes out to everyone, but only those who have been effectively called by God and his grace can actually hear it and receive it and be saved by it. This is the same thing that Paul says in Romans chapter 8 verse 30. Listen to Paul's logic. All those who God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Now justified means to be declared righteous. That's what happens when we get saved. You're guilty. God comes along because of the blood of Jesus and says you're innocent. You've been justified. And all those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is effectual calling. And we know that it's effectual calling because there's not a person who is called, who is not also justified, who is not also glorified. No one falls out in this chain. Let me just tell you, friends, that if you don't believe in two different kinds of calling, a general gospel call and an effectual gospel call, you have to be a universalist based on this. If you think that this calling is something that goes out to everyone, then you have to believe that everyone is going to be justified. And you have to think that everyone is going to be glorified. Something to consider. Now, okay, let's take all of this and let's bring it back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. <clears throat> when Paul says that God began the good work of salvation in the Philippians, he's saying that God sovereignly called them to himself by his grace He's saying that the Philippians did not start the work of salvation in themselves. You remember Lydia, the first convert in Philippi? How does the book of Acts tell us she got saved? Paul was out there preaching the gospel, a general call. But then Luke, writing about this, pulls back the curtain, and he reveals to us that God opened Lydia's heart to believe the gospel. That's the effectual calling. So when Paul says, I am sure of this, I'm confident. He says it because he knows that the God who starts the work of salvation always finishes what he starts. Now, before we talk about God finishing what he starts, I just want to point out to you that we all sort of intuitively understand this. This what? We all intuitively understand that God has to start the work of salvation if anyone is to be saved. Now, maybe your theology hasn't caught up to your intuitions yet, but at some level, you know that if someone is going to be saved, God is the one who has to do the saving. How do you know that? Because you pray for people's salvation. Well, Sean, I don't pray for people's salvation. All right, well, we need to have a different conversation, right? But think about that person that you've been witnessing to, your friend, your family member, your coworker, your neighbor, right? You've been been doing your part, the general gospel call. You've been, hey, not perfectly, but consistently maybe, or maybe even inconsistently, right? But you've been trying. You've been trying to get at them with the gospel, and it hasn't been working. So what do you do? You go to God. God, please help them to believe. Open the eyes of their heart. Give them ears to hear. Give them eyes to see. Impress the gospel on them. What are you doing there? You're, you're saying, God, begin the work of salvation in them because I can't do it on my own. So yeah, we all already believe this whether we realize it or not. Now, Paul is sure that the God who started the work of salvation will also finish it. That's the language of bring it to completion. Which leads us to ask another obvious question. How can Paul be so sure that God will finish it, right? I mean, it's, listen, it's one thing to say, I believe that God started it. Hey, you know, look at it, it's pretty obvious God started it. But to be confident that God will finish it, where, where does this confidence come from? Well, if you're still in First Corinthians, let's let's look at chapter one. If you're n- not still there, just go back to First Corinthians chapter one. <coughs> Starting in verse seven, Paul says, so that you are not lacking in any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Just, just let that simmer, right? We're, we're here, we're waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for the last day. We're waiting for the end. Paul knows that the Corinthians are waiting for that. He knows, he's a good pastor. He's a good pastor. He knows that they're anxious, just like we're anxious, Can I make it to the end? Will I make it to the last day? Will I deny Christ? Will I choose sin? Will I choose this world? Will I choose the flesh? Or will I choose heaven? Will I choose the spirit? Will I choose joy everlasting? I'm nervous. I know how weak I am. I chose sin just this morning when I didn't have to. I don't know if I can make it to the last day. Paul says, you don't sustain you. God sustains you to the end. Guiltless the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 9. This is huge. Here's his reasoning. Here's his anchor. Here's the theology that undergirds his confidence. God is faithful. By whom you were called. That's effectual calling. The same God who called you into a relationship with himself. The same God who began the work will sustain you to the end because God is faithful. This is who God is. If you think that you won't make it to the end, my question for you is, who do you think God is? Do you think he's the kind of God who leaves tasks unfinished? Do you think he's the kind of God who can fail a mission or who forgets to turn in an assignment? That's not our God. Our God doesn't lose motivation. Things don't slip his mind. You're not going to get lost in the weeds. Some of you have maybe texted me this week and I didn't text you back. I probably saw it, intended to get back to you, completely forgot about it because there were 80 other text messages. But God's not like that. He doesn't get distracted. He doesn't run out of resources. He doesn't get tired. He's not affected by shifting passions. He can't be lured away or enticed by sin. I mean, just stop and picture it. Here you are, guilty. Guilty. You're guilty. I'm guilty. We're all guilty. We've lusted. We've chosen ourselves over God. We've failed to love our neighbors. We've sinned against members in the church. We've done what we know is wrong And as we were doing it, we knew it was wrong and we presumed upon the grace of God. We thought, it's okay, God has to forgive me. We're guilty. And so here you are, this guilty person who's rebelled against your good and perfect and kind and holy and loving and glorious God. You're guilty. And you're on this very narrow road. And if you fall off one step to the left or one step to the right, it will not be something you can recover from. You will fall and stumble into the pit of hell forever. How can you hope to make it to the last day? Your hope has to be, it has to be that he who puts you on the road in the first place will keep you on the road like a little kid bowling he's put these bumpers in place to keep you in the narrow lane and the God who puts you there he's he's also got his hand on your back and he's just sort of gently guiding you like Bella was riding her bike the other day and we were going down a big hill and at the bottom of the big hill was busy traffic and she still wanted to ride her bike down the big hill and man that's scary right i what if she gets away from me so I had this grip on her shoulders One hand on her shoulder, one hand on the steering wheel. Bella felt like, and in many ways she was, right? She felt like she was the one who was cruising down that hill. But I had her the whole way. She wasn't going to slip from my grasp. You're not going to slip from his grasp. If you could bring yourself to salvation, which you can't, but even if you could, you would lose it in an instant. You would be gone. You'd be out of here. You'd ruin it before the day is out. What kind of arrogance and hubris must live in our hearts to think that we can sustain ourselves for the last day? Lord, forgive us and correct our theology and help us to see you for who you are, the God who keeps us and sustains us. Help us to see who we are, weak, arrogant, sinful, we are faithless. You are faithful. We are weak. You are strong. Lord, lead us all the way home. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept, 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 God is keeping, blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. How can you have any kind of confidence? How can you be sure in the same way that the apostle is sure about the Philippians? How can you be sure in that way for your own soul because God is faithful. He will surely do it. Guys, this is all over. It's like on every page of the New Testament. Romans 11:29, Paul says this, the calling of God is irrevocable. You know what that means? It cannot be revoked. Why is it irrevocable? Because God's character is irrevocable. His mission is irrevocable. His passions don't shift. His nature doesn't change. His plans and purposes always come to pass. Now, with all this in mind, I want you to listen to Romans 8.30 again. The verse hasn't changed, but perhaps your heart has. All those whom he predestined he also called powerfully, effectually, sovereignly, graciously, joyfully called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, You might be tempted to think something very incorrect at this point in the sermon. You might be tempted to think, great, God is sovereign. I love this stuff. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God and salvation. He's going to do it all. All I got to do is hang out. Let him do his thing. God's going to be carrying me home. I'll just be sitting here eating Cheetos, watching football. Got it. No. Wrong. Dangerously wrong. Deadly wrong. Unbiblically wrong. Scripture, to which we are beholden, not to any theological system, is explicitly and abundantly and repetitively clear about two truths concerning salvation. Number one, God is completely sovereign over salvation. We got that. Number two, man is totally responsible. You will never see these two truths divorced in Scripture. Sometimes, for certain reasons, God will emphasize one truth more than another, but he will never pit these truths against each other. You should never consider one of these truths to the neglect of the other. To, to do that, to emphasize man's responsibility but not God's sovereignty. Or to emphasize God's sovereignty but dump his, your responsibility. To do that will lead you into all kinds of errors. Now in this morning's text, we see both of these truths. God is sovereign and man is responsible. We've already considered the sovereignty, let's look at the responsibility. In verse 6, Paul says God is completely sovereign. He starts it, he finishes it. Got it. But then there are verses 9 through 11. Turn back to the book of Philippians with me. (coughs) Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. One of the most common objections to God's sovereignty and salvation sounds like this, and you've probably heard it before. You probably thought it before. I know I have. If God is sovereign if he's doing it all from first to last, then why do we need to pray? Right? Why pray if God already has it all worked out? Well, the simple answer is because the Bible tells me so. Right? The same Paul who teaches that God is completely sovereign also prays for the Philippians. Paul prays, Peter prays, Jesus prays. Jesus was God in the flesh. He prayed. You see this all throughout the Bible. God's children, they go to God in prayer and they ask God to do that which he has already promised. Let me just give you one example. It's from the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray, hallowed be thy name, or make your name holy, right? He says, your kingdom come. We know that both of these things will certainly come to pass. The name of the Lord will be hallowed in the earth. It's going to happen. You can bank on it. The kingdom of God will come fully to pass on this earth. You can bank on it. It's going to happen. And yet, when Jesus' disciples go to him and they say, Master, teach us how to pray. He says, pray about these two things and ask God to do them, even though they will definitely Happen anyways, John Piper describes the the melding together of god 's sovereignty and man 's responsibility with a phrase that I think is really useful. He says, "We act the miracle, we act the miracle in this morning 's text. The miracle is that we will be found pure and blameless for the day of christ that 's what we see right there in verse ten, so that you may be approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now that's a miracle because God is the one who has to do it through us. He begins it, he completes it. That's a work of God. It's miraculous. And yet, it is something that God does miraculously through our actions. As we grow in love, we have the capacity, the increased capacity to exercise Our powers of discernment to approve what is good and what is not good. What is evil and what is righteous. What's of the flesh, what's of the spirit. And when we exercise that discernment well, we are better equipped to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Turn with me to chapter 2. Look at chapter 2 verses 12 through 13. I'm going to try my hardest not to just preach these verses like I'm going to preach them when we get there. Therefore, my beloved, as you, have also, uh, if you, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Well, what happened to chapter 1, verse 6, Paul? He who began it will bring it to completion. We get to chapter 2 you got to work out your own salvation. Is Paul contradicting himself in the space of a page? Not only that, with fear and trembling. Oh, Paul the legalist. Pfft, I knew this dude was going to put some law on us. This is supposed to be about serious joy. Now he's telling me i got to work out my salvation and I have to do so with fear and trembling? That doesn't sound like grace. Verse 13. Four. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. We both work. We both work. That's what that verse says. We work our salvation, but we can only do that because God is already at work in us. If this word for is wrong, we get the order backwards. And and really, it just doesn't make any sense, right? Right? The only reason you can do any work, the, the approving what is excellent, right? The, the works of righteousness, the adorning of the gospel, the feeding of the poor, the, the caring for the widows, the preaching, the sharing, the evangel— The only reason you can do any of this is because God is already at work in you. When Bella was riding down that hill on her bike, she was gripping those handlebars so tight her knuckles were white. She was watching the road in front of her. She was listening. She was doing her part with fear and trembling. But the only reason she could do that is because I had a hold on her. Friends, do not think that God's beginning and completing the work of salvation in you means that you don't have to do anything. You do. And it's... Precisely the opposite, in fact. It is precisely because God has begun and will complete his work in you that not only can you work, but that you must work. This is not my idea. You're saying, Okay, Sean, that's one verse. That's one verse. Maybe they mistranslated that. Uh, maybe your exegesis is off. Well, go, 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 go somewhere else. Let's go to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 12. By the way, I have had this conversation with someone before who was so bent on rejecting this theology because it's an assault to the flesh and to our pride. They were so bent on this theology, on rejecting it, that they said, you have a a wrong translation. It's like I was talking to a Jehovah's Witness. Chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on, right? That's work out. I'm striving to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The only reason Paul can work is because he trusts that God has already done the work. Guys, we're going to do this again in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter 2. It's going to be just as good, even better probably. Now, earlier I told you that when you try to pit God's sovereignty and man's responsibility against one another, you end up with all kinds of errors. But we should also recognize that even when you try to bring them together, which you should do, when you, when, when you bring them together, the ordering matters. Okay? The ordering, that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying both are true, but you have to have them rightly ordered. You have to put your freedom, your responsibility, your capacity to make moral decisions, you have to put that under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. You have to. If you put that above the umbrella of God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty dissipates because guess what? He's not sovereign. Sovereign means to be completely and totally free and utterly powerful, which means that there is only one being in this entire universe who is sovereign. And guess what? It's not you. It's God. You can see this ordering, God's sovereignty over our responsibility, back in chapter one. Let's go back to chapter one. Look at verse nine. Paul says, It is my prayer that, and then he goes on to talk about love abounding, growth in knowledge and discernment, approving of what is excellent. Why does Paul pray? Why doesn't he just go, hey, Philippians, you're responsible moral agents, right? You're responsible. Here's what you need. You need more knowledge and discernment and love. So get to work on that. Because he has the proper ordering. He understands that although this is something that the Philippians need to do for themselves, in themselves, this is the work that they have set out for them, that God has to graciously empower them to do it. So he says, hey, (laughs) I'm praying for you, but he really is praying for them. That God would do it in them. Now, whenever this theme comes up, there's, there's always one question that I, I, I consistently field. And it's, it's, the, it's the classic. What about free will? Right? If God's doing it all, and if he's sovereign, if his will is sovereign over my will, then can I really say that my will is free? Well, it depends on what you mean. The Bible certainly doesn't talk in the language of will. Hobbes, Plato, Locke, they use that language. The Bible basically uses the language of sovereignty and responsibility. In the one or two places where it does seem to be getting at this modern conception that we have of will, it basically tells us that we are enslaved by our sin. It tells us that we have two choices. We can either be slaves to God Or slaves to sin. And those are the only two choices. The Bible says, listen, I don't know about that freedom of the will question, but here's what you need to know. God is sovereign and you are responsible. And if you will, with your own fallen human reason, turn to God and say, that doesn't make sense or that doesn't seem fair. God will tell you what he's told many before you. Who are you? oh man, to answer back to God. Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me this way? Now, there's one more thing I want us to see in this text before we end our time together. There are two, there are two reasons really why I feel like we we had to spend a whole sermon on this one verse, essentially, verse six, and really pound this out. One reason is pastoral, Right? A wrong understanding of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility will will do all kinds of bad things in our personal lives, which will affect our church, right? It will it will uh, steal our confidence in our evangelism. We won't have any confidence in our own salvation, and and, and not having this kind of gospel confidence, this kind of surety that Paul has, it, it doesn't make strong Christians. It makes weak Christians who. Who don't make it through times of persecution and, and church splits, who can't survive fiery trials, who lose in the battle of spiritual warfare, right? Low gospel confidence leaves us weak and wilted. It causes us to limp all the way home. It even affects the way that we share the gospel with others. We start to be more man centered in our gospel appeals rather than Christ centered. If we think it all owes to us in, in our wisdom and our power and our ability to call, That'll affect the way that we do make the call. And that's not what God wants for us. It's not what God wants for you. He he put these truths in the Bible to strengthen your hand, to build gospel resolve and confidence for you for the sake of the mission that you've been called to. Now, listen, as important as that is, and it's very important, it's not the most important reason why this matters. The most important reason is actually found in verse 11. Turn there with me. Paul says that we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That comes through Jesus Christ. To the glory. And praise of God. So here's what I want you to see. If you misunderstand how verse 6 relates to verse 11. You will reduce the glory and praise that God rightly deserves. You will diminish it. You will get in the way of it. You will muffle the glory that he should receive from you in your salvation. Friends, there are two kinds of Christians. Those who think that they will make it to the last day owing to something in themselves. And those who think that they will make it to the last day because of the grace of God alone. There were five solas in the Reformation. The Reformers started reading the Bible. The Bible, God's word, gave life to God's people, which brought the church back to life, which is the reason why we're sitting here today with open Bibles and happy and full hearts, free to to worship the Lord Jesus. And one of those five solas was sola gratia, grace alone. Right? Right? Now, maybe you're thinking, well, Sean, you can't say grace alone. You just said that we have to work. Yeah, but I also said the only reason you can work is because God is already working. Right? Any aspect of your salvation that you think you can take credit for is something that you can glory in. Right? I did that. What makes you want to raise your hand and take credit for something? You know, there's a group project. And, and, and Jimmy, I saw that you, you did the volcano and you did the plaster board and you set, up the, you set it up in the auditorium and you go, no, I, I'm the one who did the board. Why do you raise your hand in that moment? Why do you want credit for that? Because you want that glory for yourself. I did this. I did this. Friends, God is not in the business of sharing his glory. He's a glory hog. He's zealous for the glory of his own name. Glory is a zero-sum game. Karl Marx viewed the world and all of its resources as one big pie. And we are just all in great conflict trying to see who can get more. And if I take a bite, then you don't get a bite. Well, that's just not true. But it is true when it comes to God and his glory. There's only one pie. And every bite that you try to take... Every bite of glory that you try to hog for yourself is a bite of glory that you are trying to take out of the mouth of God. Isaiah 48:11 My glory I will not give to another says the Lord. So, how does this relate to our confidence? How can you be sure that you'll make it from this day to the next or to the last? Because your salvation is backed by God's passion for his own glory. He began the work in you and he receives glory when he brings it to completion, right? What kind of God would he be if he just started you on the path and let you fall and fail along the way? He gets no glory from that. His glory is going to be manifest primarily in you when you are filled with all the fruit of righteousness, guiltless at the day of Christ Jesus. That is when you will maximally glorify God. That is why you can have confidence. That is your surety. God says it like this. Let me just read that whole verse to you. He says this. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it that I may not cut you off. Oh, because he won't be glorified if you fail. If his people don't make it to heaven, he won't be glorified. So he says, for the praise of my name, I'm not going to do that. Behold, I have refined you. That's, I've disciplined you. I've, I've, I've worked out all the sin in you. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. Friends, there are some churches and some ministries and some pastors and some Bible teachers who will tell you, you're going to make it to the last day because God loves you so much. And that is the bedrock foundation of your assurance, wrong. It is true that God loves you, and that matters. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that matters. But it's not the deepest possible level of confidence that you can have. God loves himself more than he loves you. How could he not? He's God. So brother, sister, you can be sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Because of God's sovereign grace, you will abound in love, knowledge, and discernment so that you can approve what is excellent and so be pure for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God we're going to sing a hymn together now it is well with my soul and there's a line at the end of that hymn when it's talking about the Lord coming back on the last day and it says the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend even so it will be well with my soul let's pray Lord, help us to leave this room here today full of good gospel confidence rooted in the reality of who you are and what you've done for us in the finished work of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.